uh, in the sports world, uh, we've got, we started to use the term greatest of all time or the GOAT. The GOAT is kind of what they abbreviated to, right? And I got to admit, it's not a very flattering title to be called the GOAT. Um, but it means something great in the world of sports, and it's to, to be the greatest in your sport or your position or whatever all time. So there's talks of, you know, Tom Brady being the GOAT when it comes to quarterbacks. The world of basketball has had the debate for years now who's the, the greatest of all time in basketball players. Is it LeBron? Is it Michael Jordan? Who is it? And, you know, all these, these great people, you could look through history at all the different things and literature and acting and and anything, and you've got some of the greats that you always look up to, right? You always kind of idolize, and you say, if we could do things the way that they do it, then we could really be something. I remember as a, a little kid uh, with my brothers, we'd go out in the yard, or we had a little Tykes basketball hoop in the basement, and uh, we would always pretend to be the pros in basketball. And what that meant is we would pretend to shoot like they shoot, so the guys who had really weird form, they shoot like this or way over their heads. We would shoot like them because, well, they're the pros. So if, if they do it this way and they're really good, and then if we do it that way, then we'll be really good. And it worked out for us because all of us made it to the NBA. We're uh, three-time all-stars. It's pretty great. You bet you didn't know that. Um, but we idolize and, and kind of embody the greats that, that we look up to. And Paul is going to introduce us this morning to the GOAT, the GOAT of all time, it comes to humility. Remember last week in our passage, he says, uh, listen, since you have all these blessings, at the beginning of chapter 2, since you have all these blessings in Christ, all these blessings as part of your salvation, be of one mind, be of one love, you know, stand united. And then he said, listen, how you do that is by humbling yourself, considering other people greater than yourself, do nothing out of selfish ambition, do nothing out of conceit, and he goes on today, and we're going to see in our passage that he's going to give us a great example. And what Paul does, in many ways, is opposite of how we normally teach today, because we'll teach doctrinal truth, and then try to illustrate it and apply it in a very practical sense. But Paul did the opposite, and he said, now, here's your practical, humble yourself. And then he uses doctrine to illustrate uh, what it is that he's talking about. So let's look at our passage this morning. We're going to start in verse 5 and go through verse 11 and see what, uh, see what we've got to work with. Uh, in the time ahead. So Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul goes into this passage, and he's saying, listen, we need to look to the goat of humility. You want to be humble and live with the kind of humility necessary to live in unity as believers. We need to look at the best of the best. Now, he didn't look to Mother Teresa, and I don't think she was alive at the time Paul wrote this, but if she was, I still don't think Paul would have looked to her. He doesn't look to all these other people that he could have used as an example, but he looks to Christ and says, we need to look at the example of Christ. We need to look to the example of Christ because he himself is the best picture 
of what this humility is supposed to look like, the kind of humility that you and I need to embody. So first we look at the example of Christ. And as he points to Jesus, this is a, a dangerous passage in some ways, because it's in this passage that many of the dangerously false teachings about Christ are kind of birthed and uh, kind of supported. Uh, for example, docetism uh, is this belief that Jesus never actually became human. He never really became human, but he just kind of took on the appearance, like a shapeshifter kind of thing, that he just showed up and looked like us for a little while, but never really was. But uh, you've got uh, Arianism. Arianism is the belief that Jesus wasn't actually equal to God. That's found right here. But Jesus uh, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so they root some of these false teachings in this very passage. But Paul's using this to say, hey, we need to look at Christ. And so let's, uh, let's address this example and kind of maybe address some of these false teachings that can come out of it as well. So first, as we look at the example of Christ, Paul says that Jesus has humbled himself to become a servant. Jesus humbled himself to become a servant. In verses 6 and 7, uh, Paul talks about the, the form of Christ. Paul is saying, listen, Jesus existed in the form of God, yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this is where they'll come up with this idea of docetism that says Jesus took the form of man. He didn't actually become man. Uh, but as you look into the words that Paul is using here, when he uses the word form, it's a rough translation for us because we think form is in a shape alone. But there's two Greek words that mean similar things yet are very different when it comes to form. And the words are morphe and schema. And I'm going to help explain the difference between the two. The Greek word morphe, which is what Paul uses here, has to do with a visible representation according to the nature, the essential nature of something. Where schema is more of a temporary thing that can change over time, right? You look like something now, uh, but you may look different at another point in time. So let me illustrate this, for example. Let's imagine we've got a little kid named Billy. And we're going to bring Billy up here, and he's going to stand in front of you guys. Just picture him. He's about three years old. Okay, so Billy's about yay tall. Uh, he's a cute little guy, right? Maybe he has a little chocolate around his mouth still from the cookies that Allison brought that he dug into early. And he's up here. He's being a little rambunctious. And, and Billy's about yay big. But you can recognize, when you look at Billy, you're not doubting or thinking to yourself, maybe Billy's a cow, or uh, maybe Billy's a, a chimpanzee, or maybe Billy's a dog. You're not wondering. You're like, Billy's a human. You can recognize that he's a human. He's in the, the morphe or the form of being a human. But now let's uh, fast forward, if, as if we could, to when Billy's 18 years old. Now he's as tall as I am, a little scruffy because he doesn't know how to uh, shave yet, maybe. And, you know, he's put on some, some bulk. He's a little bit bigger. He's still in the morphe of being human. You still look at Billy and say, yeah, you're a human. You're a, you're a person. But his schema has changed quite a bit. He looks very different. So when Paul's talking here about Jesus existing in the form of God and then emptying himself and taking on the form of man, the form of a servant, he's using that Greek word morphe. So what Paul is saying is Jesus existed in the visible manifestation, the visible appearance of the essential nature of God. You're like, wow, well, what does that look like? <laughs> Pretty crazy. You look at passages like the beginning of Hebrews where it says that Jesus is the 
radiance of the glory of God. You look in Colossians where we say Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God, and we see those things lived out in Jesus' character, right? The, the character of God manifested in Jesus. But to help us grasp an understanding of what it means when Paul says that Jesus existed in the visible manifestation of God, we got to go back to the book of Exodus. Go back to Exodus chapter, 33, uh, Exodus chapter 33. And it's in Exodus chapter 33 that Moses is meeting on Mount Sinai with God. And he asks God, won't you show me your glory? Won't you just show me your glory? You guys remember this? And, and God responds to Moses. And he says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So God tucked Moses in the, in the cleft of the rock, covered him with his hand till he passed by, and let Moses see the backside of God as he had passed by in all of his glory. That's the best picture we can come to grasp of what Jesus was like existing in the morphe of God. A, such a spectacular, glorious, visible manifestation of what it is to be in the complete nature of God that our, in our humanity we can't even, we can't look upon it in its fullness and survive. We would die. So I can't explain exactly what that looks like, in other words, because nobody's seen it. It's a crazy thing to think that Jesus existed in that form, and yet Paul says he emptied himself, he emptied himself and took on the form of man, the morphe of a slave. And so to the Philippian believers here, as Paul's talking about this, they're, they're recognizing that Jesus has existed in the highest form possible. And then he took on the form of a servant, which would be the lowest form possible. As Paul is giving a picture for the humility of Christ, he's emptied himself. And we can't come to grasp just how deeply Jesus owned himself. Charles Spurgeon said, you and I have no idea how high an honor it is to be equal with God. So how can we therefore measure the descent of Christ when our highest thoughts cannot comprehend the height from which he came. The depth to which he descended is immeasurably below any point we have ever reached, and the height from which he came is inconceivably above our loftiest thoughts. This is why Paul is using Jesus' example to kind of summarize Spurgeon there. He's saying, we can't grasp how high Jesus existed in, his, uh, in the morphe of God to understand how low he humbled himself by taking on the form of man. We cannot wrap our minds around it. And so Paul is saying the greatest example of humility is seen in Jesus even just coming to earth as a human. As a human, taking on the essential nature of humanity. We can't even grasp that. But then Paul goes on, he says, not only did Jesus humble himself to become a servant, but as a servant, Jesus humbled himself to become a sacrifice. So he's humbled himself so much already, and yet when he comes, as you move into verse uh, 8 here, he says, And being in, the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. 
the God of the universe who existed in the full uh, nature of God, in equality with God, emptied himself to take on flesh and then experienced death. Talk about humility, humbling yourself, lowering yourself. But then he says at the end of that, not just any death, not just any death, but even death on a cross. The most humiliating, shameful, excruciating form of death. So Paul is saying, listen guys, you want to live in, in unity as Christians. You need to, as a body of Christ, you need to stand arm in arm together. Cisco's walked us through that. Stand arm in arm. In order to do that, you have to humble yourself. In order to humble yourself, you have to look to the example of Christ and understand just how deeply he humbled himself to come and to serve us. Look to the example of Jesus Christ. And as Paul does this, he is just absolutely reiterating and driving home the depths to which Jesus has lowered so that we would understand, man, we can't even achieve that. We can't even achieve that kind of depth in our humility. So as we look to Christ, it is a continual pursuit of humbling ourselves more and more and more. Because there's no point in time where we could say, I have lowered myself more than Christ has lowered himself. We will never achieve that standard. But Paul doesn't leave it there in a sense to say, hey, just look at Jesus as if you're walking through you know, a museum and you see an exhibit of Christ-like humility and say, well, just look at it. Admire it. Be just blown away by hum how humble Christ is. But at the very beginning of all this, Paul says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. He says, listen, this is a command not just to look at Christ, but to embody that same humility. So he says, don't just look at the example of Christ, but learn from the example of Christ as well. We need to learn from it. So I want to spend the next couple minutes, and then we're going to look at four different ways uh, that Christ manifested his humility in a way that we too can manifest it. Because here's the reality that we can all agree on right now. None of us have ever existed in the form of God, so we can't humble ourselves to become human from being the form, in the form of God. Uh, none of us are going to humble ourselves to the point of being a sacrifice for the salvation of humanity. We can't do that. So it, Paul's not saying look at Jesus and do exactly in the sense because we, it's impossible for us to do that. But the principles of what Christ has done in his humility are, are applicable for us. So how many of you guys have ever seen, ever seen the TV show Undercover Boss? Anybody? I've seen a couple episodes, all right? Now, I've not watched it closely, but the principle of the show, for those who don't know what it is, is the, the high-ups, the CEOs, the presidents of these like bigger corporations will go down and work at like an entry-level position in their company. So think like McDonald's, because we talk about McDonald's a lot. Um, the the high-ups at McDonald's go and work at the cash register, you know, and they're, and they're getting a feel for what that is down the bottom. And, you know, that is not even a, a glimpse into the humility of Christ, but them giving up that position to go take that entry-level spot is, is an example of humbling themselves. And so what we're going to look at here is first and foremost that, that the Christ-like humility that Paul is pointing to stoops down to serve others. It stoops down to serve others. Right? Jesus had to come down to earth as a human to serve the needs of us as humans. He didn't stay up in heaven like some dictator god that uh, sits up in the loftiness of heaven itself and says, well, you just do things this way. But 
Hebrews tells us that Jesus took on flesh. He experienced the sufferings and the trials and the temptations that you and I experience as people so that he could be a great high priest and sympathize with us. He understands your suffering. He understands the temptations that you face. He is a God that has stooped down to take on the form of humanity to serve humanity. And you remember early on in Jesus' ministry with his disciples, as they just were trying to wrap their minds around this idea that uh, you can't serve me, you know, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. Uh, I can't baptize you, John the Baptist said, but Jesus said, no, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve, right? And wrap your head around that for a minute, that God came to serve us. Let that just sink in and saturate for a second. The, the crazy idea that that is. The crazy idea. At, at Sugar Grove, I remember being there, and uh, while I was there near the end of my time at Sugar Grove, I was in charge of all of our first impressions ministry. And so that meant, you know, I had ushers that I was overseeing and um, hospitality teams, the parking crew, all, all these different things. And there were some weeks with our parking team, which I'm going to be honest, it was hard to find people to help park cars because in Illinois it gets cold, you know, and nasty at some point during the year. And these guys are out in the parking lot parking cars when it's cold and nasty. When it hit negative 15 last year, the guy, I was like, listen, you guys don't have to go out there today. It's, like, dangerous. And they're like, no, we got it. So they're, like, in full snow suits, and they're out there parking cars. But sometimes... Sometimes they'd be short a guy. You know, life happens. Someone gets sick or, you know, a family situation comes up. You go on vacation and, and you travel. So some of those days, the Chris, the, the guy who's in charge of the team, would come up and say, man, Jeremy, we really need some more people out here. Can you find anybody? You know, it's Sunday morning. It's crazy. I'm like, uh, I'll come out there, right? So I'll go throw a vest on, and I'm standing out in the parking lot with the fancy little wand thing. Like You think you have the power at that point, and you don't because people don't listen to you and you're directing traffic, and I can't tell you the amount of times someone would get out of their car, and they'd be like, what are you doing out here? Like, don't you have better things to be doing? And that, like, the first couple times, I was, like, so shocked. I'm like, what, what do you mean? Am I supposed to be doing something else? Like, this is crazy. You know, they had this idea that for some reason the, the pastors of the church, why, why would the pastors be out parking cars? That's re just ridiculous. Why, why is Pastor Tim outside in the front greeting people as they walk into the church? He's, he's got to preach a sermon. Shouldn't he be, you know, in his office looking over things one more time? Like, why are they out serving? And it's just this idea that, listen, just because we have some title doesn't mean that I should never be so high that I can't go park cars. That would be ridiculous. How prideful would I have to be to say, I'm too good to go help park cars on a chilly Sunday morning? How ridiculous would it be for any of us to say, I'm too good, I'm, I've become too high to go and help somebody who's in desperate need, to go serve in a position, even if it may be more your, your entry-level kind of position? None of us, none of us are so good, have become so high in whatever position that you have, that we are above doing a, a, a menial task or, or a, a service position like that, helping somebody who's in a, in a ridiculous need. I'm not too good for that. And the reason that I'm not too good for that is not because I'm not, but it's because Christ has set the example 
that if he can humble himself from being God, existing in the form of God, to take on human flesh and to serve me, then who am I to say that I cannot serve the least of these? Who am I to say that? And that is the example that Christ is giving us and that Paul is saying, listen, as you embody, as you have this mind among yourselves as Christians, you are not so high that you cannot serve your brother and sister in Christ who are next to you. You have not grown to a point in your Christian faith where you are too good to get on your knees and help out with a couple two-year-olds because they're too low for you. We all have the capability and we all have the a command to humble ourselves in such a way. So Christ-like humility, Christ-like humility stoops down to serve others. Secondly, Paul gives us in the example of Christ that, that Christ-like humility sets aside personal rights to share with others. Christ-like humility sets aside personal rights to share with others. Jesus, existing in the full form morphe of God, Paul says, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. And that would, I want you to picture, Samantha, do you care if I use Daisy as an example? Okay, cool. So picture Daisy, all right, and she comes up here after the service, and she runs in that room and she grabs a cookie. And she's running around with this cookie in her hand, and, and you say, hey, can I have that cookie? And Daisy goes, That's what Paul is saying is a picture of something to be grasped. It's something that you already have that you're going to hold on to selfishly to not let go of for other people. So when he says that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, Paul is saying Jesus had equality with God, yet didn't consider it something to use selfishly or out of selfish ambition. Because if anybody had the right if anybody had the right to act out of selfish ambition, it was Jesus. And Paul says, not even he acted out of selfish ambition. So who are we to do that? When Jesus had the right to grab all that there is in creation, because by the way, as God, that means it belongs to him. As he had the right to do that, he set that aside and emptied himself. That in the poverty of Christ, in the depths of his humility, we might become rich. That he would give to us what we could not give to ourselves, and that is the righteousness of God. In the poverty of Christ, we would become rich. So as we look at the, the example of Christ, are there not times in our lives where God may call us to give up something that, yeah, well, you could say, this is mine. This is mine. I, I rightfully belong to this. And to to share it with somebody else, to, to give it to somebody else who couldn't uh, provide for it of their own. I think of the, the nice pantry over in Lee. The opportunity that we have that we could take what's ours, the, the clothing or the shoes or whatever it may be that, that is ours, that we could hold on to and say, man, no, this is, this is mine. I paid for this. I, I got this. But we could give it to somebody else who may need it more than we do picture of, of giving up our personal rights, setting them aside to share with other people what they, what they don't have. Christ-like humility. And Christ-like humility sacrifices to save others. Sacrifices to save others. Paul even here talks about the, the cross. 
Jesus Christ went to the cross. And, and when we talk about the sacrifice of Christ, and when we talk about sacrificing today, we live in a, a time that talks of sacrifice as in your excess. Like, if you have any free time, then maybe you give up your free time to, to serve. Or if you have any leftover resources at the end of the month, then maybe from that, I'll give back, or I'll give to other people. That's not, and I want to be careful here, but that's not really the sacrifice I think is pictured in the healing of Christ, because when Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, he gave everything, his own life, to lay his life down. He says there's no greater love than this, that someone would lay down their life for a brother or a friend. So as we look at the example and we learn from the example of Christ, not to just uh, admire it from a distance, but as we get up close and personal and we apply that to our very lives, in what ways is God leading you or saying, sacrifice? Maybe it's something that that time that you don't really have to go help that, that neighbor who's needing some help right now, or, or those resources that you maybe don't know exactly where they're at, but somebody's in need and they need your help because it is in our greatest point of need. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave up everything when we had nothing to give us everything. The sacrifice of a Christian body. And remember, Paul's here talking about supporting each other. These people are going through some difficult times. They're, they're being oppressed and persecuted in their faith. He says, listen, give up of, what, of yourself to serve those around you, to care for and support each other. Stand arm in arm. As a, I talk about sports a lot, and I apologize. But I always was taught that there's no I in team. Right? You win as a team, and you lose as a team. Right? And this principle, I think, applies so well to the Christian faith that I don't sit over here in my own pew and look at the family sitting across the sanctuary and say, man, they're struggling right now. That must be tough on them. But that we would share in each other's burdens. That as they suffer, I'm suffering right alongside of them. I'm coming alongside and say, maybe, hey, in your time of need, I've got a little bit that I could give to you. Let me support you in that. Just to have Christ-like humility, not to hold too tightly to the things that we have. And lastly, Paul gives the example that Christ-like humility submits to God's standards. It submits to God's standards. In verse 8, Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, I want you to picture this. Jesus coming down to earth, walking around with the Pharisees around and his disciples and, you know, with big puffed up chests. And if the Pharisees challenge him on something, he goes, do you know who I am? I can do whatever I want. Why? Because I'm God. He's got this egotistical attitude about himself that says, I can do whatever. I make the rules. I don't, the rules don't apply to me because I can define what they are. But that's not what Christ did when he came. Paul says he humbled himself to become obedient, that Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill the law. He obeyed the law of God to the T. So God, the one who dictates what it is, humbled himself to say, now I'm going to adhere to it myself. So that in the example of Christ, 
you and I cannot say, well, that rule doesn't apply to me. Well, that rule, I'm better than that. That's just for so-and-so. You know, that's not for me. Jesus says, listen, I fulfilled the law to a T so that in my example, you too should submit to God's standards. To do things God's way as he dictates it, as he says it should be, because God's way is the right way. God's way is the right way. He knows. He's got the wisdom that you and I don't have. He has the perspective that we cannot see from. And he says, this is how things are to be done. This is how you live as my people. Who are we to answer back to God and say, well, you know what, God, I don't think you thought about this. Right? I don't think you, you don't know what it's like to be a human and have to deal with these messed up people all around me. He goes, wait a minute. No, I'm pretty sure they killed me. I know exactly what it's like. I know exactly what it's like. I lived it. I suffered it. And I fulfilled the law. I learned to be obedient. And so should we. To be humble is not to go before God and challenge him on what he's called us to do, but to say, Lord, I may not understand it, but, but help me understand it. Help me submit to it. Help me to live in the way that you have called me to live. This is what it is to be humble by learning from the example of Christ. The goat of humility, Jesus himself. But you know the good news is, as we uh, kind of close this out with our, our third point, is that, that Paul doesn't leave Christ in his humility, right? He didn't leave him in verse 8 in the uh, having died a death on the cross, but in verses 9 through 11, he talks about the exaltation of Christ. He's, uh, this is an encouragement as well to the believers in Philippi. Say, hey, you know, lean on the exaltation of Christ, because not only did Jesus humble himself, but now he's been raised up. And in these verses, it's just like... You almost can sense the excitement, right? And he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's an encouragement for the Philippians that says, hey, listen, even though you may be suffering now, even though there may be powers that are higher than you, that are coming down on you and oppressing you and persecuting you, listen, Jesus has been given the name above every name. And notice, that's one of those, uh, I don't, what's, what's the word the? What is the language term for it? Article. <laughs> I should know this, but I didn't. These articles, we use them like, like they're nothing. How many times do you use the word the in your everyday language? But then Paul says, listen, God gave Jesus not a name that is great, not a name that is significant, but he says, the name that is above every name. Jesus has been made transcendent by God. In his humility, in the depths of Christ's humility, in his death, God raised him up and elevated him above all things. He's he's higher than you. He's higher than me. There is no power in Washington. There's no power in foreign nations. There's no power in hell that is a, a higher power than Jesus himself. God has raised Jesus to be transcendent above all things. And so Paul is saying to these people, listen, I know it's tough, but the man you serve, the Savior you serve, the God that you serve, he's greater than it all. He's greater than it all. He's been made great. So have courage. Stick with it. And he goes on from there, and, and he even says that, as an encouragement to them, listen, your opposition is temporal. Your opposition is temporal. There is a day coming where everyone's going to bow the knee to Jesus. Everyone's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. So while right now those people are oppressing you, 
they're going to bow the knee to Jesus. You know that. Well, right now, your boss who thinks you're ridiculous for not wanting to cut corners, he's going to bow the knee to Jesus. He's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. That person, your neighbor who just thinks, why do you spend all this time with church stuff? What's this whole faith thing? Why are you so religious and, and, and mocks you or challenges you for it? They're going to bow the knee to Jesus. So this encouragement for the Philippians, listen, persevere. Persevere in Christ's humility. He's been made great. And even those who persecute you, even those who, who oppress you, they too will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is only for a season. This is only for a season. Jesus has been made greater than all things. So lean on his exaltation because he wasn't left in the grave. If Jesus was left in the grave, then he was just like you and me, just some other, another ordinary guy who happened to live a, a great moral life and he was killed and that was the end of Jesus. But if God has raised him up, then he is victorious over the grave. He has supreme power, supreme authority. Lean on that. Lean on that in your suffering. Lean on that when, when you're faced with that opportunity that God gives you to be a light and to share the hope that you have in Christ. And you have that little whisper in your ear that says, eh, what are they going to think about me, though? Like, are they going to think I'm weird? Because I'm not really all for people thinking I'm weird. Maybe I'll let other, someone else say it. Lean on the exaltation of Christ says, nope, Christ has humbled him so much, himself so much to serve me. Who, who am I to not open my mouth and talk about how great he is? Let me exalt him. And, and in all things we do, even in Christ's exaltation, he does it, as Paul says, to the glory of God the Father. See, when you and I live our lives in our humility, yeah, we don't do it just for the sake of being humble. I don't do it just for the sake of Tom Schatzberger. But it's for the glory of God. That we live now for the glory of God. That one day when we're in heaven, as a kid, I remember, you know, you start talking about you get to heaven, you're going to be given crowns, and you're going to lay them back at the feet of Jesus. And as a kid, I just couldn't wrap my head up. Why? Why would I do that? You know, if I'm good now and I, I earn those crowns, why am I going to give them to him? But you come to understand that you didn't really earn them, did you? He did it for you. He gave you the righteousness. And so when you get there and you're given those crowns, man, all you can do is say, no, 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 no. They belong to you. And you give them back. It's for the glory of the Father that we live now and for his praise and honor in all of eternity. That's to live with the humility of Christ. That's to look at Jesus as the greatest of all time when it comes to an example for us to emulate, we will never achieve the humility of Christ to its depth. So let us encourage each other in our pursuit of humility. They say humility is like a, there's a story of a matador in Spain who was doing some bullfighting. And uh, he, you know, bull comes by and he thrusts that last sword into the bull's back. Bull goes down, right, and the crowd starts going nuts. And he turns around to face the crowd and receive all this praise. And as he does that, the bull gets up and comes right behind him and, and spears him right in the back with his horns. And they say that's what humility is, uh, pride is like. The second you think you've defeated pride, it'll come right back and stab you in the back. Continually.